Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Bradley, anesthesiologist and U.S. Naval officer. I'm also the host and creator of the Black Doctors podcast. This podcast provides weekly 30-minute episodes that tell the stories of minority healthcare professionals. It is my hope that hearing these unique and inspiring stories will encourage others to consider pursuing these challenging and rewarding career paths. So please join me for the Black Doctors podcast, available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and all major streaming platforms. Honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. Welcome back to another episode of Unfiltered. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Chris Hoyt with us today. Dr. Hoyt is an ER physician, toxicologist, and researcher based here in the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado. Uh, we've had a we've been fortunate enough to interview a a, a list of distinguished and interesting folks. Uh, and Dr. Hoyt is absolutely no exception to that. So thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So one of the, my most favorite parts of doing this podcast, uh, maybe the most favorite part is hearing folks' origin stories. I, I think our listeners get a lot of value out of hearing where folks come from and how, and how their particular journey led them into medicine or emergency medicine. And, and in your case, toxicology. Would you mind uh, just for a few minutes kind of sharing with us uh, your background and, and how you got into into medicine in the first place? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, um, I'm actually originally a, a Texan, um, big Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, <laughs> and I, I moved around a little bit, um, you know, after I, after I graduated from high school uh, through college, you know, went to the East coast and um, went, to, you know, went out to the East coast and, and, and went to college and, and decided, you know, before my, my, my mom, she is, she was a, an office manager, um, a radiology office manager, um, at Southwestern, uh, at Parkland in, in Dallas. And so that was kind of my first sort of, um, introduction into like, what does, what do these people do? Um, what do these physicians do all the time? And I would hear these stories from her. And my dad got sick. Um, he got sick when I was young, uh, around 12, 13. He, uh, he had rheumatic fever as a child and ended up having to have an operation to um, repair one of his heart valves. So I got, I got a really close up view into um, the world of medicine, be, you know, being with him and going through that whole ordeal and, and watching him recover from that. So um, that's kind of where I decided, you know, this is what I want to do. Um, which is where, you know, that's what kind of what I, where I got the bug, um, decided that I wanted to be a physician. So I ended up going to medical school, um, in New Jersey. Um, and then I came back across uh, the United States a little bit to Chicago, um, which is where I uh, did my, uh, emergency medicine residency at the Cook County hospital in Chicago. And, um, that at that time, you know, I did my emergency medicine residency there and I got you know, I had a, a very cool case there um, of, a, of a person who um, it was actually a malicious case where someone um, tried to poison someone. And I, for some reason, I don't, I don't know what that says about me, but I, for some reason, I thought that was a really cool thing. And I thought, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Um, and trying to work through, do the, the, the detective work, figure out what had happened to this person, um, what the substance was, how to treat it, all that stuff really got me 
um, and, 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 and made me have bug for toxicology. Plus my mentors in residency, both were toxicologists and some of the, they're still mentors of mine today, great friends, the, two of the best people, Sean, uh, Sean Bryant, excuse me, and Steve Axe, two of the greatest people I know. Um, and those are kind of really, they gave me the push to go into toxicology. And so here I am um, at Rocky Mountain Poison Center now, and uh, I'm the medical director here, and uh, I've loved toxicology since, and I would go back and do the same thing if I could. What a testament. That's, I thought you were going to say you wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon after your <laughs> dad's heart yeah. valves. Right. Right. Yeah. Whoa, how did you make that leap? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, I, know. I hear you. No. You know, actually, now that you say it, there was a time when I thought that cardiothoracic surgery was actually really cool. I still think it's very cool. Um, when I was when I was coming, um, when I actually first started medical school, I thought that maybe this is what I want to do. Uh, but then for some reason, I caught the emergency medicine bug and decided to do that. Yep, I know that. I know the feeling, and, you know and the I feeling. think yeah. I do. I do. And and you know when you when you talk about toxicology, I think you know a lot of our listeners are residents and they've they've had some exposure to it. A lot of our a lot of our listeners are pre hospital folks and other folks. And and you know, what strikes me, and I, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, is like you said, the detective work of being a toxicologist, it is such a broad understanding of the chemistry of different exposures and different ingestions and different uh, poisonings. It is such a broad knowledge base. And it really, it really draws on a lot more basic science than our day to day uh, clinical function as emergency physicians does. And uh, tell me about how did that kind of drew you, whether it was the the, the the different classes of exposures or whether it was the detective work. I mean, I, I think it's, it's such a, it is a unique field and one that I think is underexposed in a lot of ways, even through training in, in many ways. Um, and, and I would just love to hear kind of what about that, that drew you in originally initially. Yeah, no, I, so I could not agree with you more. Um, the way you describe toxicology, you know, toxic, one of my, one of my, um, one of my colleagues always describes toxicology as medical chemistry, because you're right. There's a lot of basic science pathophysiology that goes into it. What, what I love about it so much is that, you know, we, you know, it's hard to, to, to so toxicology, there's ongoing research all the time because um, we have to do this as much study as we can, because it's hard to do really good research in toxicology because you can't poison someone and do, a, you know, a controlled trial, poisoning <laughs> someone, you know, it's, it's tough to do that. So, uh, you know, we, we there's a, tons of research that goes on, but the, the beauty is like in emergency medicine, it's great because a lot of times we have limited information on patients. And we have to make very rapid decisions to stabilize people and make diagnoses. What I love about toxicology is, is that a lot of the things that you, we do, we, we, we go through the pathophysiology to explain why does this person, this patient, why do they have the clinical manifestations that you observe? And why does this particular therapy work better than another one um, based on what the pathophysiology is? And so there's tons of detective work. That's really what got me into it. It's like, oh, what, are, what are the possibilities? What, what could have done this and why? Um, the research aspect of it is really cool. The, the chemistry and basic science of it, I love. Um, so all those things together, like you described, are, are reasons why I you know, have such a, you know, a high affinity for this particular discipline. And, and as you mentioned, it is, um, toxicology is kind of an un, pretty unknown um, in the world of medicine, like you, like you said. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, people know toxicology, like toxicology reports and, and um, you know, yeah, you know, getting forensic toxicology in someone right. who's deceased. But then there's the medical toxicology piece, which is what we do. 
um, which is to try to treat people who have been poisoned. Yep, absolutely. I mean, even within our specialty, the number of times I wound up calling you and your folks at Rocky Mountain uh, for help. I, it's, uh, it, it is a niche field that is well, well more important than it is represented in many ways. Um, and I think it's one of the things I'm most excited about having you on the podcast for is to give our listeners an exposure to that. Um, I think one of the best ways to talk about toxicology are interesting cases. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we could, uh, you've, you've published on an, on an incredible uh, breadth of of types of cases and research. I mean, whether it's black widow envenomation, other reptiles, amphibians, insects, you've published on exposures and ingestions. Would you mind kind of walking us through a couple of interesting cases that uh, you think our listeners might want to hear about and learn a little bit from? Absolutely. So, um, (laughs) so I'll give you this one, this one particular case that um, is kind of indicative. This is much more of a kind of a case of, um, it was interesting because it was, all, it was one of my first days as a toxicology fellow. Um, so we, we, you know, uh, Rocky Mountain Poison Center covers uh, four big states. We cover Colorado, Nevada, Montana, and Hawaii. So it's like very disparate, you know, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, and so one of the cases that I had uh, when I was a, a fellow, um, we, we have an international program here as well where we train um, people that come from, um, you know, from other countries here to kind of refine their toxic medical toxicology knowledge. And one of the cases came from um, one of our colleagues um, um, over in Asia. And there they've got three really bad snakes. So in America, we have, our, we have you know, snakes that every once in a while you end up hearing about sad cases where people die. But in general, our snakes are not as potent as the snakes, for example, in Africa or Australia or in Asia. And in Asia, um, in this one particular area, they have three types of snakes. They have a, a, a snake, the king cobra, which is a huge, big snake, and they deliver tons of venom when they bite. Um, the large, probably the large, one of the larger volumes of venom. Um, then there's uh, the, what's called a banded crate, which is a, probably a, a snake that's um, causes neuro, is a potent neuro, uh, has a potent neurotoxin that paralyzes you. And then there's the old world kind of pit vipers that cause a lot of local damage. And so uh, one of these, one, there was a case where a kid was um, bitten in the arm um, by a snake that was there. And the problem is, is that they, the antivenoms there, instead of being all in one product, um, at that particular time, they were uh, individual products. So there were three different antivenoms for, all three, for those three different snakes. So person was bitten um, and brought in um, this young, young kid bitten on the arm. And the issue is that, um, you know, we, the, the, the medical personnel there had to guess which snake was it um, because <laughs> the kid was really snake. And so they didn't know which snake it was. So they had to guess which antivenom to give. And so they ended up giving antivenom. Some antivenom wasn't working. And what they recognized finally, it was a, it was a, it was a king cobra bite. And what the king cobra bites do is they cause a lot of bleeding, one, and two, they cause some, uh, what we call, you know, with myocardial depression. So they cause um, hypotension and bradycardia. And that's usually how people die. So uh, they were given antivenom. They figured out it was a king cobra. So they started giving antivenom. But like I mentioned, the king cobra leaves, leaves such a huge depot of venom in, the, in, in whenever they bite their prey. There's a huge load of venom that goes into the tissue. And so they were giving antivenom. The kid, the, the the victim would get better, but then hours later it would get worse again because the antivenom was kept getting absorbed into the system, and so finally they ran out of antivenom, and uh, so they called the local hospitals, and um, the local hospitals uh, were you know 
sent over some anti-venom, but the kid ran out. They, they eventually ran out. So they had called the Red Cross uh, to get some anti-venom there. And the Red Cross was able to find, I think, find some anti-venom from somewhere else. But it came to it that the kid was so sick and they were worried that this kid was, you know, going to die because of the, the effects of the venom. So the question came up is, should we disarticulate this kid's arm to get the arm off so that the venom would stop absorbing into the systemic circulation? So he was actually getting prepped to go to surgery to have the, the conversation was had with the family, you know, and poor kid, 18 year old. His right arm dominant was about to get his right arm disarticulated to, to stop the effect of the venom. And luckily, at the last minute, the Red Cross was able to find some more Cobra anti-venom for him. Um, and it was gotten to this young kid. And so and he was given the anti-venom. Ended up not having to have that uh, disarticulation. Had some scarring, obviously, on his arm from his bite, but ended up living. And so that was one of my first cases as a fellow. Uh, when I was learning to, to to become a medical toxicologist that I'll never forget that case because I was thinking, first of all, it was like my first kit, one of my first cases, my first days. And I thought, did I make the right choice here? <laughs> this is going to be like this, this all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, am I going to get these kind of cases all the time? And so, um, so anyway, so that was one of my, that was a, a case that I'll never forget is about this. We almost had to make the decision to amputate a kid's arm uh, because of a King Cobra bite. Uh, another case that stands out for me is we had a case of a of a of an older man who um, he um, his he he's in the you know lives in the, in, at their home with his wife and um, he accidentally um, so one 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 poison that's really bad is verapamil uh, which is a calcium channel blocker that we we have some therapies but they're not greatly proven and you know so. Um, you know, if you get a sick verapamil case, you can do all the right things and the patient still may not do well. Um, so when one of the, the, um, this person, this particular person, um, reached over and the pill minders are not great. <laughs> we, in toxicology, we don't, we're not big fans of pill minders, uh, because if it, they tend to confuse people at times, well, he ended up taking his wife's verapamil. Um, and he took, uh, and he's like in the, in his mid eighties, he took his wife's verapamil accidentally. And um, it took multiple tablets of her of her uh, verapamil. I think he took her weeks worth her weeks supply of verapamil and came in really really ill. Um, you know, hypotensive, bradycardic, um, got you know was intubated. And in this particular case, we get to use uh, what's called high dose insulin or hyperglycemic u or, ins or hy excuse me hyperinsulinemia euglycemic therapy. And so basically, like a diabetic dose of that is about point you know diabetic dose of insulin for a pe person in DK is about 0.1 milligrams uh, or 0.1 um, units of insulin per kilo, and we use about one unit of insulin per kilo. So we gave this man a 70 or I think he was maybe 75 kilos, 75 units of insulin as a bolus, yep. and then put him on 75 units um, of insulin uh, uh, per hour to start. And we took him all the way up to 22 units of insulin per hour as a constant infusion. And what was amazing is, that first of all, he lived. Uh, second of all, uh, his blood sugars were in uh, four or five hundred. One of the one of the effects of calcium channel blockers is that it stops the release of endogenous insulin from your pancreas, um, from the beta cells, uh, the islet cells of your pancreas. So you have a relative uh, reduction in this amount of circulating insulin. So these people become hyperglycemic usually. And his blood sugar went up to in the mid 400s. And 
despite the fact that he was on around 70, um, he started out on 70 um, uh, uh, units per kilo, or excuse me, 70 units of insulin per hour. His blood sugar didn't budge for days, stayed in the four or five hundreds, and then finally started to come down when he started to get better. The look on the faces of the, 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 uh, the nurses when we asked them to give the medication, you know, was yes. uh, looking at me like, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. So a lot of times we actually have to go stand there with them to do it because they feel so very um, uncomfortable, which I totally understand. Um, sure. So I started doing this. Um, but anyway, he came through and I just remember thinking, did I really just give someone 70 units of insulin per hour after a bowl <laughs> of insulin? Did we just do this to someone? Um, and so that was actually really cool. Uh, and then the last case I'll talk about uh, is we had a case of um, there was a plant uh, in the metro Denver area um, and w- like a mine, I should say. And one of the things that they use in the mines to to kind of get out um, to to try, try to, to in the mines to try to uh, remove metals from mines is cyanide. And so there was a big cyanide exposure because so if you think about cyanide and in, in, in order to make cyanide to not allow cyanide to become hydrogen cyanide gas, which is um, what we know will kill you, you have to make sure that it stays in an, in an alkalemic environment or alkalotic environment. So pH is above 11 so that the gas won't disperse. Um, well, there was an accident and somehow the, 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 the storage of cyanide went from a pH of you know, 12, 13, or um, somewhere high like that down to like seven, six, that's a big deal. Um, and that releases a lot of hydrogen cyanide gas. And so we had, uh, there was a, a mass, ca- it was, well, it was a, not a mass casualty, I should, casualty of, I should say a sentinel event where there were multiple uh, victims that came in um, who were cyanide poisoned. And you can imagine this basically shut our, shut our emergency department down because everyone was worried about off gassing. And is everyone, you know, right. are the, our, our, our providers all going to get sick? And so, um, that case was really, I remember, interesting because we called in all hands on deck, all, you know, our fac- a lot of our faculty and our fellows came in um, and we had to treat a lot of these pe- people with the antidote, which is hydroxocobalamin. Um, and the uh, patients all did well. There were no deaths, luckily, but we had a few people that got really, really sick um, from their cyanide exposure. So those are three cases that I think are pretty indicative of the kind of swath of things that we deal with as toxicologists. Absolutely. Those are great uh, representative cases. I mean, there's, like you said, there's environmental exposures, occupational exposures. There's, uh, we didn't even talk about, you know, plants and, and botany and that. And I think that's a great kind of representative sample of, of, of all the things you deal with. And, and to, to our discussion earlier, that's, that's your, that's your world. You know, you, 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 there isn't a, a compound that exists on earth that people can't, be exposed to or ingest intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. And I think what struck me, particularly as you talked about the, the cyanide cases, was your passage in the book, Bring Them All, uh, the, the ASAP book uh, that our, our, our very own John Stater was very involved in. And, you know, you talked a lot about the, the need for more awareness, more preparation regarding uh, biological chemical weapons, uh, and, uh, and how we are in many ways unprepared for that type of a, 
um, it's not a pandemic per se, but uh, in this in this day and age, I think we we talk a lot about preparation uh, and things we prepare for well, and things that we maybe didn't prepare for as well. Could you touch on that as because I, I when you said all hands on deck and and you're trying to you know protect yourselves from off gassing and you're you're taking on potentially a large volume of patients, a lot of that reminded me of your discussion of biological weapons and. You know, could you talk about what a disaster like that would look like, and and how we can prepare ourselves as a community for that? Yeah, so um, that's actually a super important point and very timely um, with what we're going, what's going on today. Um, we um, so, so in speaking of biological weapons, you know, there, there, there's always this, um, you know, it's 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 when when things are not happening, um, meaning that you know there's no. Um, biological threat happening, popping up in the world. I feel like we do get complacent, you know, um, thinking, no, this is not going to happen. But, you know, around the world, things like VX gas and sarin gas, every once in a while, these exposures happen. And, you know, those are really difficult to treat. And if you could imagine like um, going to, you know, being here in Denver, uh, going to Mile High Stadium, if there's a sport event, you know, there's 50, 60, 70,000 people, you know, potentially um, in that in that stadium or downtown Denver, if someone wanted to release some gas like that, um, you know, you could kill, a, you know, a large, large number of people. And, you know, um, I'm just not sure that we're ready that if it happened right, you know, 10 minutes from now, what the process is to make sure that we, you know, everybody is safe and where we move people and how do we mobilize resources like the antidotes that we would need. You know, there's a particular antidote for, you know, gases like sarin and VX. Um, you know, where where are these stores located? Who's going to bring them to the site? You know, like how do we keep track of the patients in the area? You know, we've got people that are disaster planners, luckily, and they've got uh, they've got a lot of skill and and a lot of experience doing this. But in the case of like a, a biological weapon like that, um, you know, the coordination between you know my group and you know, our disaster planners and, you know, our state and local governments and all that, you know, I'm not sure that we're really prepared for to coordinate efficiently on the scale that we would need to if we got a, an attack like that. So, you know, I think that this this current, you know, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 situation should really be a wake-up call for not just the pandemic, but like you mentioned, like a biological um, uh, an attack. If that happened, um, that would be, I mean, a, a terrible, and and I'm not sure that we're ready to to, to attack that. So one of my one of my one of my um, goals is to um, you know I'm I'm fortunate that I you know my poison center has a fairly, fairly big reach and um, I sit between uh, three very large um, academic institutions with um, resources and some disaster preparedness. And so one of the things I would like to do when we kind of bring our attention back from COVID and get through this pandemic. Um, is to um, start to really plan for disaster preparedness on the level of scale that we need to for a biological attack um, and get our hospitals ready um, and my poison center ready, state local governments ready um, and all that so that uh, we can meet that challenge when it happens. That's right. I think I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think if there is a time in which the public and elected officials and others are going to have the momentum and the insight into preparing for this it's 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 now or i mean in in the short future wherein we feel like uh we have a better handle on covid but there's still an appetite for preparation uh as you know and as you've seen over the course of your career the you know the 
oscillations of preparation, right? I mean, there was, there's always a brief surge when, when Ebola becomes a threat and then there's a brief surge, you know, with things like SARS and MERS and, and every once in a while with, if, with, if there's an environmental exposure, there are these kind of ample, you know, waves of preparation and then, uh, falling off and then preparate, you know, it's, it's Newton's third law of everything, uh, you know, going to disorder from order. Right. Uh, but I think in this unique, uh, pandemic, I think capitalizing on that is one of our best bets, you know, whether it's, uh, creating better, uh, infectious disease, pandemic response mechanisms and, and apparatuses, or, or whether it's uh, chemical warfare, uh, biological warfare, uh, you know, I think this is the time to try and really beef up those, that, that infrastructure, right? Because um, uh, I can't imagine a time in which the public is, has, has a, a bigger appetite for feeling more prepared for disasters like that. I totally, yep, you're 100% right. Um, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, this is the time to, to do it and put processes in place that stay in place and that are, you know, maintained and updated and iterated to make sure that we're ready. Because it's going to happen at some point, you know, it's, it will happen. Uh, who knows when, can't, can't see any of the future, but I mean, I, I don't see a time when, you know, I don't see how it would be possible that something like that would not happen. That's right. That's right. Has COVID changed your job or your practice in any ways, either expected or unexpected, whether it's having to talk to people about hydroxychloroquine, which, you know, six months ago was a drug that, I mean, unless you're, unless uh, maybe Chris, you frequently deal with malarial patients. It's not a huge portion of my patient population, but uh, I mean, whether it's uh, hydroxychloroquine or the new drugs or uh, other ingestions has, has, has COVID changed your practice in ways that you you would have predicted or, or not predicted? Yeah, so it's interesting. I just um, talked to someone about this recently. So, uh, you know, with I'm with you. My the number of malarial patients I've I've seen, you know, um, in, like coming and presenting to the emergency department has not been uh, very numerous. Uh, not not numerous. Um, so, what for poison center wise though? Um, I think two major things have happened. Or actually, let me say three major things of three points about for uh, effect of COVID. One, um, it's interesting if you look epidemiologically at uh, like big kind of crises and disasters, like Hurricane Katrina. And if you look at this particular SARS epidemic, and if you look at the Great Recession that happened recently, if you look at these big events, call volume to our poison center increases. And we think that uh, part of the reason is that, you know, um, people in that times are vulnerable. And so um, some of the you know, self-harm attempts um, from medications and things like that go up. Um, and so that's one thing is our volume has increased since this, this, this COVID crisis has occurred, which is pretty predictable, you know, um, because we've seen it before. Um, the second thing, and talking about like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, so, um, you know, some recommendations were made uh, previously about uh, potentially the benefit of, you know, what either one of those anti-malarials, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, to prevent or treat, uh, you know, COVID-19. And um, so, yeah, that we have seen an increase in the number of calls to our poison center about especially hydroxychloroquine. Um, and it's both questions as well as exposures that happened where there was an adverse effect. So we've had both of those, like questions about hydroxychloroquine, the drug, and then question, you know, questions from providers calling us to say, hey, this person overdosed on hydroxychloroquine. Um, so both of those things have happened. 
In the case of chloroquine, um, you know, there was that sad case of the gentleman in Arizona who um, took some chloroquine phosphate from um, an aquarium cleaner um, and tried to, 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 to prevent, treat himself or prevent himself from getting uh, COVID-19. He took that and ended up uh, dying from that. And we also have had a couple of cases here of chlor or chloroquine overdoses, and they are really difficult to treat. Um, overdoses of those anti-malarials. Those are some of the, the drugs that we, you know, we, we refer to as, you know, the, the keep you up at night drugs. Um, the, mm -hmm. the patient overdoses on that, that makes you worried because uh, they're tough to treat. So uh, we've had that. Um, that's the second piece is that both of those drugs have popped up. And then the third thing is, you know, the, 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 this is the Swiss cheese effect that number one, uh, kids are at home more now because schools have been out. Number two, you know, the recommendations are to clean all your surfaces. So sales of things from like Lysol cleaners from Lysol and Clorox are up. And so exposures to bleach and other cleaners are up 20%. Year on year, on year if you look to, to, you know, February, March, April, um, year on year, they're up 20%. So we've been dealing with that very frequently. And I've put out a couple of press um, releases and uh, things out um, about not drinking bleach uh, because it can be very harmful and don't, you know, you should not do that. There's no evidence that <laughs> drinking bleach will help you with, uh, you know, treating COVID. So we've had to do that. So those three big things are, have changed our practice. So we, to the point, you know, we talked to our agents on phones. I've talked to my medical toxicology fellows, the learners, you know, um, we talked to them about it, that, that this is, they get this, we're getting calls about this. And so we're trying to educate the public about those, the, those things. Absolutely. That, thank you for that insight. I, I, um, many of the unintended consequences of quarantine, certainly. And, um, yes, uh, you know, your perspective on that is, is so helpful Do you, you just have a better sense of what the, the numbers look like. Like you said, you can compare it to year over year and, um, and it's something that, you know, as things slowly reopen, I think, uh, I'm hopeful to see a downtrending, but it's not going to be anytime soon. I mean, I think there's still those, that risk and, uh, the, the risk of those exposures is going to continue to be, to be present in, in the, the, the community. Thank you for the work you've done to, to bring awareness to that and to, to promote that, you know, uh, on a, on a wider scale. Yeah. Um, can you walk through, um, kind of what it looks like when someone calls the poison center, you know, how, how does, how do calls get kind of shunted to one individual or another? How, how do, how do you guys prioritize and strategize your responses as great as you are and your fellows are there, there, there are so few of you. Um, we, we, this is an unabashed call for more toxicologists, people who are smarter than myself, who, who didn't labor through organic chemistry quite as much as maybe I did in, in undergrad, but, uh, but, but you're a limited resource, right? And in, in times like this where call volumes are up, how do you guys manage that and, and kind of direct calls to, to, to the folks who can best answer them, but also protect your limited resource of yourselves? Yeah. So a uh, very timely question. We actually just, uh, the operations team and I uh, just had this discussion the other day uh, because it's it's super very important. So so in general, we probably take um, you know as far as just you know people call about their pets too, but we we take probably right over a hundred thousand to two like a hundred a hundred to hundred and twenty thousand uh, calls every year, specifically wow. about people being exposed humans. We have a, a, a that, that call volume is actually higher when you talk about just information calls, you know, asking about a product. Is it safe? Those kind of questions. 
and then the pets, you know, pets getting in and stuff, but just pure, like I got exposed to this and now I'm worried. We get about 120,000 of those calls every year. And so uh, it's a huge volume. We've got what are called spies. Uh, they're spe uh, specialists in poisoning information. They're basically nurses and pharmacists who are there on the phone to answer, like a call comes in and someone's asking a question about a case or a call or whatever it is or exposure, um, those people answer the phones. So if, if so, if I call the poison center because I was worried because I overdosed on something or if I'm a physician in the hospital, I have a patient there and I'm gonna call to get a consult, um, that, that's the first person that would answer the phone is either one of our nurses, our trained nurses or especially trained pharmacists. And then if those people can't really answer the question or the call or request it, um, then they can ask to talk to one of our physicians, um, which, you know, first they'll get a fellow, but um, we have an attending physician that backs up a fellow every single day, 24 seven. So um, that's kind of how the call comes in. What you mentioned is a huge deal that when you get these surges of phone calls, um, you know, then it becomes difficult because, um, you know, we had, uh, for example, we had a mine tailing, there was a Alamosa river, uh, there was arsenic that ended up flowing into the river for a bit from a mine, an old mine. And so we got a huge surge in call volume because people were super worried and understandably so about that. And I wanted to talk about the, 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 the um, terrible effects of arsenic. And so we, you know, the, at that moment we were, uh, the, the demand outstripped our capacity. So what we have done now is we've done a couple of things to try to mitigate that. One, we have what are called uh, PIPs, which are uh, poisoning information providers. So they're non-medical, but they can give information about pro you know, products. So if you call and say, hey, is, you know, how dangerous or, you know, tell me more about this, you know, antihypertensive medication, what, it, what effects it can have on my body. Um, you know, there are scripts for those kind of things that people can call and get information on. So we kind of routed some of those calls out of the population of calls that go to our spies and our doctors. And so um, that's one way we've kind of left that resource more open to answer calls. Um, we also have a chat service that people love to use, which is they can write into us uh, and then we can, we'll have someone that's monitoring it all the time. They can answer that, you know, those things through web chat um, rather than tying up the phones. Um, so we've done a couple of things to kind of offload our precious resource, which is if you get sick and you need to call us and you, we need, and you need um, some recommendations, then we have more capacity over the phones now. Um, and our call times have gone down and all that good stuff because of it. Um, so that's what that's kind of one of the things we're doing. We're fortunate in Denver. We've got 26 now faculty. Uh, we have the, the, the going joke that we always have. Uh, the true joke is that we have more top medical toxicologists here in Denver than we than the um, any other city per capita in the world, um, which is true. <laughs> yeah, yep, uh, because, yep. because like you said, you're right. There are there are only um, each year about 38 toxicology fellows in the country every year. And if you think about that compared to all those specialties, that's a tiny, tiny number um, of people that are replenishing the specialty. You're like 500, maybe, maybe 500, 600 medical toxicologists total in the United States. Um, so not very many. Um, and so we, we try very hard to offload that, the, the, the phone service so that the, our docs and, and our nurses and pharmacists can answer uh, calls from coming in from people who, you know, patients in the hospital that are sick or, you know, if you're a parent at home and your kid gets into something and you're worried, we need to take those calls right away um, to give people answers that they need. Right. Well, and, and you're such a resource. And I, I can tell you from 
personal experience is that you're always available. Your folks, whether it's your nurses, your pharmacists, or your docs are have such incredible funds of knowledge and they're approachable. And, and so the system that you have created is impressive and we are, we're certainly grateful for it no, as I know ER docs across the country are, yeah. you know, one thing you had mentioned is that as COVID, you know, settles into, you know, a bit of a smolder as opposed to a, a, a full blown fire. Um, a lot of the things that had been on the back burner uh, start to come back to the, to the forefront. And one, one, area in which you are heavily published and an expert on is, is, uh, cannabinoid exposures. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the discourse regarding the legalization of marijuana has taken a backseat as has everything during COVID. But I do think that, uh, eventually it will come back to the forefront as more States push to legalize it. And certainly here in Colorado, we were on the, 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 the forefront of that wave. And, uh, we'll, we'll put in the show notes, a number of, uh, citations from, but, but you've published on synthetic, uh, synthetic cannabinoid exposures, pediatric myocarditis, uh, you know, just overviews of the, the consequences of marijuana related cases and exposures. Could you share with us your perspective on marijuana and how it has evolved since, uh, since legalization? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and you make a good point also about the fact that like, you know, COVID has taken up all our time, which it should right now. Uh, but yeah, this marijuana will come back around. You're, you're a hundred percent right about that. It's going to come back around. And so, um, what I would say is, is that um, the, yeah, you know, the big thing about marijuana, so I, I, I was luckily lucky that I got to, so, you know, Canada semi-recently uh, legalized marijuana as well. So I was luckily to do a grand rounds in Ontario because they wanted to know the same thing. Like, what in the world is going on in Colorado and how do we prepare for it? Um, you know, my, my feeling is, um, so from the poison center perspective, uh, you know, we get calls all the time about people who tried marijuana. They, you know, uh, in, the, in the beginning, you know, people that smoke marijuana, um, very few people really get ill, um, you know, with marijuana. They, they may end up in the emergency department because they, you know, get a little too high and, you know, not feeling great, have to go in. But really, like as far as major outcomes, uh, very, very few people. Uh, but then came edibles. And so if you think about an edible, like the concentration of THC, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the psychoactive substance as part of the, in the, the, uh, the alkaloids in, in marijuana, um, the, the, the concentration of those in the edibles is very high. So once edibles were released on the market, we started getting more calls. Um, and if you think about it, like the, the product, like if you're going to eat a brownie or a cookie, you're supposed to take a bite and wait for a, you know, a significant amount of time while your body absorbs it. The problem is when you smoke marijuana, you know, the effect comes on and off and you can kind of titrate it yourself, right? So you smoke it, smoke it. If you start to feel something because the effect comes on pretty rapidly, then you stop smoking it and just let that effect happen. But with the cookie, when you eat it, it takes a time for the cookie to go into your gut, get absorbed, have first pass through your liver, and then go into your systemic circulation and then, you know, to your brain where you'll feel the effect. That, that takes, you know, 30, 40 uh, minutes to happen. 45 minutes to an hour to happen. So what, well, what will end up happening is people take a bite of the cookie and they say, all right, 10 minutes have gone by, 15 minutes have gone by. I don't feel anything. So they see, start eating more of it and more of it until they've eaten the whole cookie. And the whole cookie might have 100 milligrams or so of te- te- tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a high dose. So we started seeing more people come into the emergency department and we started getting more calls to our poison center for these people who are sick. 
um, from, from edibles. Plus the kids uh, aspect of it, um, you know, kids getting into edibles um, is a big deal uh, because the little kids can get very sick from it. Um, so and we've had some kids that have gotten pretty sick from, from eating edibles. So, so my take is that, you know, it, it's, I, I don't, you know, with this particular thing, if we're going to legalize marijuana, we just have to make sure we regulate it um, to make sure we keep the public safe, especially the kids. And if you look, I, my, one of my colleagues and I published a paper where we looked at poison center exposures, the, a huge number of the calls that we got um, were for kids in the zero to five years range. Um, you know, because all, kids in that range are very, they're explorative. They're, they, they like to explore them. They like to put things in their mouths. And so we got a huge number of calls. So um, that, that to me is the biggest public health message is edibles and young kids. One of my faculty colleagues, um, actually two of our faculty colleagues, went and lobbied uh, the state government about the child-resistant packaging, changing the packaging um, so that it makes it harder for kids to get into it mm-hmm. and make scoring the packaging so that, you know, you don't just get one big old uh, brownie. You know, it's cut up into different pieces that are all scored um, and, and, you know, like almost like a blister pack so that, you know, you can't just eat all of it at one time. Um, and to, hope, uh, to, to, you know, and hopefully those things would sort of limit exposure. But that's, I, I think that you know if if that's if we're, if we're going to legalize marijuana and do that, we got to watch out for the edibles especially, um, and watch it from the young kids because they there are cases where these kids have gotten sick. Absolutely, you know we touch on this topic from time to time across different platforms through the Emergency Medical Minute, and there's so many components to it. There's economic, there's social, there's health, there's medicinal components and but I, I think your perspective about the the toxicologic consequences of overdose and exposures in kids is there's no more important perspective i appreciate all of the work you've done to publish on this to spread to spread the research that you've done on it and like i said we'll, we'll certainly link to those heavily cited papers in our in our show notes here um, because i think your perspective is one that should carry a ton of weight as the discourse of this kind of continues both here in Colorado and, and nationwide. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate yeah. that, Chris. Thanks. So we, uh, you know, we, I could talk to you all day, truthfully. Mm-hmm. I have so many, there's, there, there is no limit, uh, to the breadth or depth of toxicology, um, which is a kudos to you for tackling the field, truthfully, a, a field that you'll never worry about reaching the end of the knowledge base, right? I don't, you'll never have to worry no. that, oh, yeah. uh, that you're, you've, yeah. you've run out of things to learn. It's a yeah. dynamic and changing environment as new compounds come on the market for a variety of purposes. Do you, you know, would, would you mind touching kind of as a last topic, just about what you see future challenges in the, in the world of toxicology and kind of directions you see the field going in or concerns you have going forward? Would, would you mind giving us an insight into the future as best as, as you can tell? Yeah, so um, one of the big challenges, so I, I'll tell you, one of the things that I've been thinking about that I think in the world of toxicology we need to do is uh, we need to catch up on the technological end. So, you know, a lot of healthcare is going digital, you know, the ability to, to do, re- you know, remote patient monitoring, um, the, the ability to track things on social media. So you have an idea of, you know, if somebody's talking about a new exciting drug that they're abusing, you know, it's not necessarily, is it, is it good or bad, but we, the knowledge, having, knowing that, that that drug is out there earlier than, oh, we're getting a lot of calls to our poison center. Cause by then, 
you know, an epidemic may have spread, you know, right. um, there's, there was a, there's a case of, um, you know, one of the, um, Opana, which is an, uh, an opioid, um, you know, people were, were abusing, you know, we've had this huge opioid epidemic, but people finally figured out because of, you know, calls to the poison center that there was an HIV outbreak because of the way that people were crushing this up and using syringes in Indiana. Um, and we didn't learn about that until, you know, calls came into the poison center. Luckily, we do surveillance and we picked, you know, it was picked up. But doing, you know, getting ahead of the curve in toxicology, I think we need to take a look at that to use digital technology that other industries and areas of healthcare are using to predict things, predictive analytics and big data. Um, I would like to see our specialty kind of embrace that, to be perfectly honest with you. So web monitoring of social media, using big data, and predictive analytics. Um, things like that, um, using using um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence is another thing, you know, um, to, like you mentioned before, to kind of offload the administrative burden for some poison centers. Um, and then, you know, also one of the other big issues um, in toxicology is, again, is our specialty is pretty small, but we just need to make sure that we keep retraining enough doctors. Because I think you hit nail on the head earlier when you mentioned it's a small niche um, specialty. We just have to make sure we have enough uh, people around to serve the needs of our local communities um, to make sure that they have access to toxicologists pretty readily. Um, you know, those are two of the big things I would say. So the tech, you know, embracing technology of our, for our specialty to do that. And then the medical education of toxicologists, you know, to make sure that we are really trained, rigorously training well, the next generation of medical toxicologists. I think we do a good job of training them. Um, it's just, I'd like to see our uh, specialty expand and grow. We probably need to put more um, emphasis on, um, I don't want to say advertising the specialty, but, you know, really putting it out there so people know what it is. Um, I think that that's super important as well. Um, so those are some of the challenges, you know, um, I see with our specialty going forward um, is that we, we're kind of, I think, a little bit behind technologically. I'd like to see us advertise the specialty a little bit more and make sure we're training enough medical toxicologists for the future. Uh, to make sure that our specialty continues to grow. Absolutely. It would be nice to get out ahead of the next Tide Pod challenge, wouldn't it? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Well, Chris, thank you for your time. I mean, you are you're we are so fortunate to have you here in our local community and also, you know, the the country, as you said, all the states that you're active in and internationally. You know, mm -hmm. we're you're such a uh, such a valuable resource for us personally. Like I said, I've had numerous cases of uh, overdoses and ingestions that uh, I have myself and, 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 the, and the patients that we're, that we're taking care of here have benefited from. And I know I speak for the hospitals across the area and hell across the country. So thank you so much for, for making the time. Um, you, you know, you're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you. Uh, there will never be a shortage of new and interesting toxicology uh, topics. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, we, we really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've enjoyed being here. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to come on. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.